This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. It's a blessing to be together with you. Mike and I are extraordinarily thankful for the invitation you've extended for us to share this time together and for the warmth of your love and your welcome. Um, It's just a blessing that I really don't have the words to describe, but I think you understand because I can see that you love being together. And so Mike and I appreciate your love and your welcome and your hospitality and the opportunity to work with you uh, and, and talk today a little bit about what the Bible teaches about selecting church officers the at the heart of our work together and kind of the the nature of our presence is more or less frames a proposal of how he and I go about this kind of work and the reasons that we go about the work the way that we do and this sets before you scriptural information for you to go home and weigh in the privacy of your study and your prayers and your relationship with God uh, and consider what in what way the word speaks to you, and that is our hope and our goal. Uh, We take this very seriously. This is uh, something that he and I have done this kind of work for a long, long time. And I'll stop for just a moment speaking for both of us and speak for myself and tell you that through the years as we've tried to do God-honoring work and selecting and appointing church officers, There have been times that I've been a part of decisions that I was really thankful that they worked out well. And there have been times I was part of decisions that I really regretted. And I'm not going to stand before you and act like that I'm the be-all, end-all, the know-all of whatever. I'm just as real and human as you, but we are devoted to making decisions and moving a process forward in a way that honors God and edifies the church and peacefully brings the church along the line of goals that meet the Lord's vision for his people. And and I hope that assurance helps you to feel at ease, and I hope that you're interested to hear what we're going to study about together today, selecting church officers. Jesus talked to his disciples about needs and the need for workers. In Matthew 9, and what is one of those instances where he talked about that, verse 37 and 38, then saith he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Here Jesus, as he surveys an audience of people, and frankly from his heart, no doubt the whole of humanity, He sees one thing. He sees a need for workers. He sees the opportunity that is there for work to be done to harvest souls, so to speak, into the family of God and usher them toward the blessings of salvation and to uh, help them walk faithfully with the Lord pursuant to that coming of the Lord when we all want to go home to be with him. He sees the opportunity and he sees the need for workers. And when you read in scriptures about the need for workers and the kind of workers that are called into the family of God, we don't just read about one kind of work or an exclusive kind of work or all the attention drawn to certain talent sets, but we read about everybody in the body having an important part to play. 
You can't come away from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 without a feeling that everybody in the church is important in the work that they do. You don't have to be an officer in the Lord's church such as an elder or a deacon to have a very meaningful and critical role in the Lord's church. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be gifted at song leading or a gifted teacher in, in the local flock in order to have an important role. So understand when Jesus said pray for laborers, He's talking about a very broad variety of different kinds of work that are very important in the Lord's church. So as in today's study, we put an emphasis on the idea particularly of elders, but to a certain extent deacons, as we place an emphasis on that, understand that's not to the exclusion of the importance of other kinds of workers in the church. We just have a particular focus in today's study. And we're here with you in honor of what Christ is saying, let's get more people in the fields. Let's get more people working. And this is just one kind of work, leadership in the church, that we need more of. So let's talk about offices for the work. Ephesians chapter 4 is a passage that shares with us the Lord's vision for how the local body would operate. He says he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. <clears throat> now, there are some things that are brought up in this passage that are of great interest to us that might need attention for some study someday, but today is not that day, and that is where he talks about the apostles and the prophets. It's my conviction that those are a work that was a first century work, that were, those works were miraculous by their very nature. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the signs of an apostle being wrought among them. The characteristic nature of an apostolic office required the presence of and the proliferation of miraculous abilities, special miraculous abilities that were unique to that apostolic work. And that's something we believe that has served its purpose and has concluded, uh, so to speak, with the first century. Now, I understand that not everybody feels that way. I'm just sharing with you why we're not spending time talking about the apostles or the prophets today prophet there being a similar thing. The very nature of prophecy is something then, at least in this context, that would be a miraculous in nature. But then he mentions other works that we believe prevail in the church today, and that is evangelists. And that's the role that Mike and I play, and we're going to talk a little bit about the role that we play in the pursuit of this work. And then he talks about pastors. <clears throat> Lord willing, this afternoon, we're going to study some about that. That word just means shepherds. In modern English, we come to think of that as a, a, a professionally trained religious teacher or a leader of a, a, a congregation. That's really not what the word pastor means. It just means a shepherd. And in this afternoon study, we'll spend a lot of time talking about how that's the same as elders or bishops, other terms that are used in the New Testament, to describe that work. Do you find it interesting that he says pastors and teachers? I used to read that on that list as two separate things. Well, you've got pastors and then there are those that are teachers like other guys that help with the teaching of the church. Maybe that's true. <clears throat> but do you wonder when you look at that passage that when he says teachers, he's describing how the pastors do their shepherding work? That's something to think about. Well, what are these guys there for? Why do we have evangelists? Why do we have these shepherds in the church? What is their purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry? Here's something that's really important for a congregation. 
I want you to stop for a moment and envision having a well-qualified, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly trained eldership that everybody's thrilled to have, okay? Think about that for a moment. All right, what's going to happen? Oh, I know. Those guys are going to get out and do the work. Well, they are. But they're also going to help equip you to be that part of the body that does your work. And you might say, oh, well, I can't be an elder. I don't have the whatever qualities, or that's not who I am, or I don't have these talents, or I can't lead songs, or I can't be that guy that helps with the teaching, or whatever work that you might wish you could do, but you feel like you're not equipped to do, and go back to the beginning of the lesson. Christ taught us to pray for all kinds of laborers. The Lord's vision for his church is that everybody in the body is involved. And part of the role of an eldership is not just that they would go do all the work, but they would help equip and engage members of the body to do what their talents allow them to do. And so his vision here is that the shepherding would lead the, the saints towards being able to do the work of the ministry. And the evangelists have that same role. It's not our goal to come plug ourselves in here or anywhere else and become the work, we're here to facilitate and help everybody in the body do their share. As you continue studying in this context in Ephesians 4, you can read on down to verse 16, and he, he shares with us there his vision of an active body where he uses language, at least in the New King James translation, he uses the language of every part doing its share. That's every part of the body where it's esteemed, you know, very glorious and, oh, look at that talented individual, or whether it's something that might be a quiet work that tends to escape our notice, every part is doing its share because every part of the body is important. And so the idea is that we have officers in the work to equip the church to be the body the Lord envisioned us to be. In Philippians 1 and verse 1, he talks about the officers that were there at the church at Philippi. Paul and Timotheus, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Now I said earlier that the bishops and the pastors, that's the same office. Again, Lord willing, this afternoon we'll look at that in detail and you'll see why. But for now, just suffice to let that point be spoken. So you've got saints, you've got the sanctified ones, you've got the saved, that's just members of the body of Christ here at Philippi. But along with those saints, there were those who were bishops. The word translated bishop means overseer. That's somebody that shepherds, you see. So you've got those that were overseers, and you have those that are deacons. That's just a special kind of servant. And there's a nature of that work that can be discussed in greater detail in the future. But for now, suffice to say, you had these officers that were a part of the church at Philippi recognized as being among those that were saints and what was their role Go back to Ephesians 4 and you see that picture, that vision. So how are we going to appoint people? How are we going to select people to uh, serve as bishops or pastors or elders? We just pick the guys we like and say, hey, guys, th th these are the ones. Hope you like it. Because <laughs> if you don't, they still are. I've heard of some groups, that's what they do. Where I come from, that would invoke someone to say, that dog won't hunt. <laughs> doesn't work well. What's the Lord's will? How do we go about this? Okay. 
we haven't found some lost epistle for the New Testament, you know, the lost epistle of the Laodiceans that we turned to and said, hey, Mike and David, if y'all go to Alma, here's what you do. Step one and then first and then you do this and then step three. We didn't find that. What we do find in the New Testament is places where someone who did the work that we do, Timothy, Titus, received a letter from someone that was inspired, Paul the Apostle, that said, here's some instructions for your work. And in those instructions, we find things that inform about selecting elders and selecting and appointing deacons. We find some places where there are specific instructions given that's a lot like what we really want to see, you know. It's like when my wife asked me to do something there in the kitchen or whatever to help her kind of with the workload. I really like specific instructions because if I don't have them, I will do it wrong. I'll do it the, the wrong way, which what I like to call my way, what she likes to call is the wrong way, okay? So I need really specific instruction. And that's what we crave, because we want to get it right. We want to please God. But what the Lord has done in some instances is he's taught principles that govern our conduct in life in general and in church work. And we might refer to these as wisdom principles. So what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at a combination of instructions, some of which are very specific to the issue of appointing officers in the church, and some of which are more just general life wisdom principles. And, you know, we're not trying to say this to say this is the only way to go about it. We're trying to help you understand the scriptural basis behind what we do, the way we do what we do, and why we do it that way. So you can be comfortable and at ease that, okay, we know what those guys are about. We know what they're going to do. We know what to expect. So the selection process, to get it straight in my very simple head, I think of it in simple terms. So think of that as the seating platform of a three-legged bar stool. Okay? Years ago, wife and I, we had these bar stools that were really... They were part bar stool and part rodeo bull, I think, because they would throw you if you weren't careful. They only had three legs. <laughs> and if one leg got a little loose and the glue was loose and it's, you know, and then the cross members were not, you know what happened. That one loose leg before long, it's going to throw you. It's not stable. For that three-legged bar stool to be stable, all three legs had to be secure and in place and each given their proper place in the physics of how that was designed. And as long as that was the case, it was okay. And it wasn't going to throw you. Okay, so we think of that as a way to illustrate the way we go about this process. We think of this as a three-legged bar stool. When we go into a congregation to work towards appointing officers, we seek the voice of the leadership. And, you know, if there's already an established eldership, that's where we start. We're not going to go against the authority of an of established eldership. And you might say, well, we don't have that here at Alma, so what do you do here? We'll talk about that from the scriptures. We'll show you from the scriptures what we do to find a voice of a leadership, and we give that some weight, but it's not a one-legged thing. See, we need the voice of the membership. It's not a pure and simple democratic process where we're a glorified floating ballot box that just counts votes. That's not what it's about. Okay, We'll talk about that in more detail. 
But in the book of Proverbs, he says several times in a variety of ways, something to the effect of, by the multitude of counselors, you conduct your business, or you wage your war, or you carry out your task, or in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Okay, I want you to think about this for a moment. We can come and we can work with you and we can spend time with you and we can get better acquainted and we can develop realistic impressions of who you are and what your abilities are and your strengths and things like that. We can do that. But you guys know each other day in, day out. Y'all are together on the Tuesdays and the Thursdays and the Saturday mornings and the whenever you do business together or you drink coffee together or you get together with each other's families and work with each other's kids and all the different things. You, you know each other day in, day out. You see a picture that we can't see even if we came and spent a week every month. Somebody just got scared they're going to have to keep us that much. <laughs> even if we came and spent a week every month for the next 12 months, we couldn't know you the way you know each other. So if we're going to make a responsible decision about who we're going to recommend for appointment, we crave the safety of your counsel. Okay? And we'll go into that in greater detail in the process of this study. And then there's the importance of the voice of an evangelist in this. And we'll look at scriptures that show why we believe that's important. And that provides a balance. There's a picture of this kind of work that that we bring to the table that's unique to us that relates to the fact that this is something we've done for a lot of years in a lot of different congregations in a lot of settings and something we spend a lot of time on. So there's an advantage of experience. But you don't know us as well as you know each other. So there's an advantage of hearing your voice as the members of the flock. And whatever honor and, and love and respect you may give us, and we appreciate at the end of the day, whoever's here that's kind of currently part of that leadership voice, you've got a level of trust and confidence in those voices that you really can't have with us to the same measure because you don't have that day-in, day-out relationship with us that you have with each other. So that local leadership brings something to the table that no one else can. And the collective voice of the membership brings something to the table that no one else can. And we bring something, scripturally speaking, to the table that others can't offer. And in the combination of that, you stabilize the bar stool. If that helps bring it back to the illustration. That's what we'll talk about today. So we'll talk about the role of evangelists. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Well, what's the work of an evangelist? Well, read 1 Timothy, read 2 Timothy, read Titus, read the book of Acts, and you'll get a pretty good picture. You'll find some examples, you'll find some principles, and you'll find some very specific instructions. An example of specific instructions is in Titus 1 and verse 5, where Paul wrote to Titus, For this cause... Left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Apparently on the island of Crete where Titus was laboring when he received this letter, there was a number of congregations. That apparently in each city there on that island they had a congregation and Paul said, I put you there so you could go in and ordain elders. Titus had that work. So there's some specific instructions that engage the role of evangelists in this process. Consider what we find in Acts 14, verse 21 through 23. This is an example 
okay, of Paul and Barnabas working together in this kind of work. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. And confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we uh, must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. What you find here is Paul and Barnabas and company doing what Paul wrote to Titus to do on Crete. They're going back and they're setting in order. They're confirming the souls of the disciples. They're strengthening. They're encouraging. And they're ordaining elders in every city. They're going back where they've worked and they're appointing church officers, aren't they? And so we see this as kind of an example of the instructions that are given in Titus 1 and verse 5. And their, their voice was important. That word that's translated ordained means to vote by stretching out the hand to create or appoint by vote, one to have charge of some office or duty, to elect, create, or appoint. Let's put that in a nutshell. We're not going to come here and tell you who is or who is not, whether you like it or not, that we don't operate that way. Mike and I, when we do this kind of work together, we have one decision to make, and that decision is who to recommend to you for appointment, and that's what we do. If there's an existing eldership, that's an easy example for the present purposes. Once we've completed our work and we've done the preparation and, and we're ready to make a recommendation, we sit down with those elders and we hand them a little packet of information and we say, here's what we recommend. We recommend brother so-and-so be appointed. We recommend this brother be cultivated and trained. He shows promise. We recommend this. We recommend that. We recommend and then we let them decide. And that recommendation is a recommendation that it takes into account things the leadership has told us, things we observed ourselves, and things we've learned from the members. So we go back to those three legs and try to keep our recommendations stable, because I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm trying to be very real with you. When you make a recommendation that you later regret, You'll learn to pray and fast before you do this. You'll learn to take it serious. And it's not that I never did take it seriously. It's not there was a point it was just like, oh, what's the big deal? But you just take it more seriously. Okay? You really think about it. And that's where we're at on that. He had this to say in 1 Timothy 5, verse 21 to 22. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. That lay hands suddenly on no man, we connect that with the other examples where they laid hands on someone in an appointment. And so we're looking at that and we're hearing instruction from the Spirit that says do not get in a hurry. But whatever we do or don't do, whatever recommendation that we make, we're not going to have it ready by the end of today, okay? Now, there's some that may move more quickly. We're going to take our time, and this passage is why. And we're going to do the best we can to be impartial in the decision-making process. I'll give you another moment of transparency. There was a time that I was uh, partnering with a couple of other guys on a work like this at a congregation. 
<clears throat> and there was a fellow at that congregation that I just really liked. I mean, we just got along great. We, we were just buddies. There was just a chemistry there. We liked some of the same music. All his jokes were hysterical. I mean, he's just a fun guy to be with. And I knew he wanted to be an elder. And he had a lot of abilities that tended towards that. But there were some very important qualities that he was deficient on. I wanted him to be an elder so bad I could taste it. I laid awake at night, I don't know how many nights, trying to figure out how I could justify saying, Let's, he should be an elder. Because I just, I wanted that to happen because I just liked the guy. And the more I read and the more I studied and the more I prayed and the more I thought about this passage, it occurred to me what I was doing. You can't center this around partiality. I mean, we're all going to fight those trends and dealing with our kids and dealing with friendships, dealing with the church, with the community. We work at trying to be equal and fair in the way we treat others. And this is an area where that's especially critical. There's a reason Paul told Timothy, look, you function without partiality. And that covers all different dimensions of his evangelistic work. And this is two chapters after he said, Hey, Timothy, here's the qualifications for a bishop. Here's the qualifications for a deacon. And in that same book, he said, You do your work without partiality. That speaks to us. So we try to set aside our personal wants and our personal feelings and our personal likes and try to make responsible, scripture-based decisions as best we can. And there's two of us. And there's a reason. Because Mike loves me and he will tell me the truth. And he'll tell me when there's something coming in my blind spot that I don't see. And he'll tell me just as plainly as I need to hear it. And I love him. And I will listen. And you can flip that around. I care about him and I want him to do solid work. And so if I feel like he's got blinders on, I will tell him. And he will listen because he loves me. And we may argue back and forth and take turns arguing with each other, laughing with each other, laughing at each other. <laughs> you know, that may go on. But at the end of the day, we're going to love each other and we're going to be each other's check and balance to help each other be impartial. Because if we can't do that, I mean, you can't do this alone <laughs> in, in the sense that I'm talking about. You really need help. Doesn't the scriptures tell us two are better than one? Somebody remembering Ecclesiastes 4? Two are better than one? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 8. We'll talk about this more this afternoon. Though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord have given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. Paul talked about his authority. And I believe in this passage he's speaking not just as an apostle, but as a guy that did evangelistic work. In this afternoon's lesson, we'll talk more about that. But think about this against the backdrop of Acts 14, where he and Barnabas were going around, among other things, appointing leaderships. He had authority. Titus had authority. When Paul said, I've left you here at Crete to do this work, he had authority, didn't he, to set an order and appoint officers. But what did he say about that authority? That's not there so I can have my way. That's not there so I get to be the guy that makes a big, important decision. That's not there to be used in a way or misused in a way that would cause the church to be destroyed. That's there for the church's edification. 
And if we can't use what authority the Lord has given this office for that God-honoring purpose, we need to relinquish that authority, don't we? I mean, isn't that why God gave authority to parents over their kids? To help the kids? Isn't that why God gave husbands authority in the home? To edify and build up the home, not destroy it? Whatever authority that's a God-assigned authority, it's there with the intent that that would be properly used for the good of that cause. So whatever authority we have that obligates us to make this sober recommendation we're talking about, we've got to work carefully to use that authority in a way that benefits you. And that's why when we sense this thing is bringing a strain that's going to create cracks in the foundation, we're going to slow down. Because we don't want to misuse that position or that opportunity. Now let's talk about the role of elders. For the sake of you understanding this, you know, the three legs here that's involved on the bar stool, what if there's a congregation that has elders that they're looking to add more elders or more deacons? We do that kind of work. Acts 20 and 28, Paul uh, at Miletus met with the elders of the Ephesian congregation. And he said, take heed therefore to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. So earlier in the, in the chapter, you'll see them addressed as elders. And he says, the Holy Ghost has made you bishops. That word overseers, that's the same word as bishops. And he tells them to pastor the church of God. The word translated feed means to shepherd or to pastor. It's the verb form of that noun that's used in Ephesians 4. So these elders that are bishops are to shepherd the church. There's, a, there's an authority there, isn't there? And that's like these other authorities. It's there to be properly used, not, not misused. So whatever decision we make is a recommendation that we take to those elders and say, this is what we recommend. 1 Peter 5 and 2 says to elders there, Peter writing to elders, and he was an elder, says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind. There are elderships and other congregations that help support our work. And those guys have influence over us and they talk to us and they make recommendations to us, but they can't oversee what we're doing here. What we're doing here at Alma is Alma's business. Okay? And it's not that they're not invested in that, that they don't care that, you know, or anything like that. It's just not within the realm of their responsibilities because they're to take oversight of the flock they are a part of, feed or shepherd, okay, oversee, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So that's an autonomous leadership. That's a leadership over this congregation that doesn't have leadership over Alma. So they may make decisions whether or not they're going to help support the work that Mike and I do, but their decisions won't affect what we recommend here. What we recommend here would come within the framework of the voice that we hear at this congregation. And you say, okay, we get it where there's elders. But what about where there's not elders? This is something I've done a little study on. Mike, I think, has done more study on this particular question than I have. So he might have more things to share, but I want to share one passage with you. And it's about the church at Corinth. You know, with Ephesus, when you go over there and read in Ephesians, and you read about elders, 
You can go to Acts 20 and say, yeah, they had elders, because you read about the elders from the church at Ephesus meeting Paul at Miletus nearby. You can read, you know, at Philippi, we read about them having bishops, didn't we? We go to the island of Crete, we know that Titus appointed elders there, and he, he called them bishops. We know they had that. Okay? You read about those churches there that Paul and Barnabas toured in Acts 14, they had elders. I can't read that about the church at Corinth. I can't turn to a passage that says, hey guys, Corinth had elders. So it looks like they hadn't yet, at least when we get to the first Corinthian letter, they hadn't yet developed an eldership. They needed one, they had a lot of problems, but apparently they hadn't developed one yet. Well, who's in charge? Who makes the decisions? Drink with me, if you would, please, from this passage. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 15. I urge you, brethren, know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Pause. Achaia is the geographic region where Corinth was situated. So he's talking about someone there at Corinth. So he says, know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Okay? King James, I believe, says they're addicted. So this, this household, this, this guy named Stephanus, they're really committed to serving and doing the work of the church. That you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. So apparently Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus came from Corinth to Paul and refreshed him and apparently may have brought him a letter that had questions that he wrote this letter to answer because you go through different spots in the letter and you, you get that he's answering questions that they had. So <coughs> they were kind of a communication and these are guys that are part of the church at Corinth and they come to Paul, okay, with the message from the church at Corinth and with, apparently with a letter. And then presumably they would have carried 1 Corinthians back to the church there at Corinth. And what did Paul say about these guys that are all diverted, devoted to the work of the church? That's who you submit to. That's who you follow. Until you develop an eldership, you identify the guys that are doing the work and those are the ones that you follow. Now, another moment of realness. Okay? Through the years, our tradition has been to have, you know, if there's not elders, well, we have business meetings and everything's done by a vote. In some places, it's a mere majority carries it. Other places, you've got to have unanimous approval or they won't do anything. I'm not trying to knock that or knock the idea of guys getting together and planning, okay? There's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs that advocates that we get together and plan and talk and share wisdom. So I'm not trying to knock that. But think about the system where we're going to let that be what decides what we will or won't do. So you've got a problem or you've got a situation that needs attention and, and all the male members are going to get together and vote and, and a mere majority carries it, okay? Let's just take that example. So you've got in that mere majority, you've got a guy that's 50 years old and he's been a member of the church all of his adult life and he's been a faithful teacher and a worker and he's got a lot of experience and a lot of biblical knowledge and you've got a 18-year-old brand-new Christian 
who's not married, he's just now, you know, out of high school, and he has the same weight in the decision-making process as this guy. Can you kind of see a, a fly in the ointment there a little bit? So are we saying that guy over here that's inexperienced and young doesn't matter? Not at all. We need to hear what that guy has to say. He's got a little zeal. This guy's, you know, he's lived a lot of years. His zeal may be starting to fade. We need to hear this guy. He might have some ideas. But to set up a system where they've got equal weight in making decisions, all right, let's, let's go a little further with that. Let's suppose you've got one guy that comes once or twice a month, and if there's a good reason to miss, in his mind, he's not there. When it's time to visit the hospitals, when it's time to, vi to, to visit the widows, when it's time to lead a Bible study, when it's time to go encourage someone, when it's time to go cry with someone, they're busy. And then you got the other person that they've immersed themselves in that. They are committed to the ministry. They're devoted to the ministry of the saints. And then you put them in the same room and give them equal decision. One guy barely knows what's going on and the other guy's been in the trenches for years. Can you kind of see there's a little fly in the ointment there? Well, I'm not saying his voice doesn't matter. Maybe he has a perspective that we can get him to share it would help us, but what did Paul tell the church at Corinth to do? He said, these guys that are actually doing the work, that's who you follow, that's who you listen to. Okay. So, how does that translate to Alma? We come and we see and we recognize and you as a congregation more or less project to us the guys that are involved in carrying on the work. And so when we're searching for that leadership voice to provide balance, we're listening to you brothers. We're, we want to hear from you. We recognize who has the influence among the congregation because it's the ones that are helping with the teaching and the ones that are helping with the grunt work and the ones that are involved. And so we listen. And we seek that voice because we need that voice. We crave that voice. That voice has an impact and an influence with each individual here that Mike and I, we can't have unless we moved here and lived here a while, you see. And so we look for the Stephanus and the Fortunatus and the Achaicus and we listen for that voice. And that's how we try to avoid kind of being the lone authority in the picture. We bring in what the, those Fortunatus and Stephanus type of characters have to say. And in our hearts, that's a way of seeking biblical wisdom to provide balance and, and, and sustain stability in the work. I hope that makes sense to you. Now, Proverbs 29 and verse 4, what about leadership? It's a lot like a king in the Old Testament. He said, the king by judgment established the land that he that receiveth gifts uh, overthroweth it. What's he saying here? He's saying if you're in leadership of a nation, don't be partial. What if you're in leadership of a family? What if you're in leadership of a congregation? Be impartial. Same, same mandate we have. So that leadership voice has to be impartial and fair. Now, let's talk about the voice of the membership. We're going to go to the example in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there were widows being neglected in daily care. Okay, And these widows were Hellenists. That is, they were biologically Jewish, but culturally they had adapted the Greek culture. And these Hellenist widows were being neglected in the regular care. So they had a problem. There's a lot of murmuring. The church in Jerusalem hadn't been going long before there was a rift developing. Okay, 
And so they appointed men who would routinely see to these ladies and see that they were properly cared for. Now, for students of the scripture, there's been an ongoing question. Were those people that were appointed there, were they deacons of the church at Jerusalem? And a lot of people have reached that conclusion. That yes, these guys were deacons. Okay? You'll find that in a lot of commentaries. You'll find a lot of brothers and sisters share that idea. Okay? But there are others that think they probably weren't deacons. They were just special people selected for a particular work to handle a particular crisis. The qualifications are different. The work of a deacon is broader than just tending to widows. There are a lot of different reasons for that. And at the end of the day, we can set aside that debate because I, I'm not locked in on what the right answer to that is. I, I, I get the idea that, well, it kind of looks like deacons, so that's not a distasteful to me. I don't share that conclusion, but if you draw on that conclusion, I, I get it. Let's just set that debate aside and let's see what we see going on in Jerusalem. Therefore, brethren, seek ye out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The leadership of the church, the apostles and elders, looked at this problem and they said, we need to hear the voice of the membership. Why would they do something like that? Maybe it's because of the multitude of counselors, their safety. Maybe it's because they had trust and confidence in the flock that as Christians, they had mature things to offer. You know what's interesting? When you go look at the list of the guys that were appointed to take care of these neglected ethnically Jewish but culturally Greek widows, you'll see a list of Greek names. These were Jewish Christians that were Hellenists. They picked Hellenists to take care of the sore spot about Hellenists being neglected. You see the wisdom in that? So we look at that example, and it's not like we found a, hey, when you have deacons, make sure you get the church's vote. We're not saying that. We're seeing wisdom in this example that respects things we find taught in places like the book of Proverbs that says, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear what you have to say. Think about John 7 and 24. Jesus said, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. He expects us to make impartial and fair judgments through life. Now take that principle and in your heart go to the qualifications for elders and the qualifications for deacons. And there are some of those qualifications that relate to the congregation's perception or the public's perception of those individuals. So you need the voice of the congregation. If you want to know how this person is perceived, you've got to go and ask the church. And so we seek the voice of the membership there for balance in the process. No single visit will make or break a candidate. I mean, if, if, if we get to this point where we're making visits in people's homes and asking for suggestions and asking, if we're asking about a particular candidate, there's no, no one visit is going to be like, well, we can't do it, they're against it, or we've got to do it, they're in favor of it. No single visit will make or break this. We're just listening to the collective voice of the church. The Bible does not teach the process requires 100% approval. In fact, we found it's kind of rare to have a candidate that literally everybody is in favor of. That's just, you know, people are people, and sometimes that's a reality. Considerations will be based on qualifications. There's a concern if we're going to come and we're going to talk to you and say, well, do you think, oh, brother so-and-so is qualified to serve as an elder? 
Well, there's the fear. Well, we don't sit and gossip about the guy. Well, we don't want to either. So we're going to take the Lord's roadmap for that discussion. We're going to get the qualifications out, and we're going to go down that list. And when we and occasionally you get to this, when you get to the whole, well, yeah, there was that one time he had a frown on his face when he shook my hand at church, and I've never liked him since. Is that one of the qualifications? Because if it's not, we're not going to talk about that. If you've got a problem with him, you need to go to him. But if it relates to a qualification, we want to have a mature, God-centered, God-honoring conversation about this. Okay? And so that's what we do. We, we restrict it to the qualifications. We will be as discreet with this information as possible. We were talking on the way in yesterday, what happens if we get dementia in our old age and our kids and grandkids gather at our bedside and the filter's gone, you know? <laughs> and we're sitting here talking about all this stuff we've heard in all these visits, you know? He's left instructions to a friend to shoot him. I hadn't decided what I'm gonna do yet. <laughs> I have told the girls, tell my grandkids, granddad didn't do it. He just heard about it, okay? <laughs> I don't want them to think I was in the, you know. The point is, there are secrets that will die with us. We're as discreet as possible. We will report to the elders or the leadership big picture data. And we have, actually have systems in place where we use numbers so that we can come and attach numbers to a name rather than saying, well, old brother so-and-so seems like a good candidate, but sister so-and-so says he's a pointy-headed nimrod and we can't appoint him. We don't do that. Okay? We attach numbers so that it keeps it all discreet and private for all the goals that you would imagine. And we take it seriously. You've got evangelists, you've got leadership, you've got membership. The evangelists help to orchestrate and culminate the process. The leadership is involved and it has to be agreeable. There's some level of oversight happening there. And the membership is consulted and their opinions are honestly weighed to help make the decision to keep that bar stool stable. And then we pray and we fast. We're not going to try to demand that you do that. We will recommend it. But this is what we do. Acts 14 and 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. I can remember a time where if you brought up fasting, there was a fear somebody would think you were weird. <laughs> Jesus talked a lot about fasting. And for Mike and I, in our conscience, this is a part of this work. We have and we will. You may not hear about it or know about it or see it. We remember what the Lord taught about discretion with our fasting and how you clean up and everything and you don't put on that face that says, look at me. But our, our hearts are convicted that this is something the Lord wants us to do. Look in Acts 13 where Paul and Barnabas were set aside for the work that they did. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. You may reach a different conclusion. I really think that's when Paul and Barnabas were appointed as evangelists because from that time forward they left Antioch and begin doing the kind of work we read about in Acts 14. It's a different kind of work. And they were set aside with fasting and with prayer and the laying on of hands. And so we look at that example and that's what we do when we appoint elders and when we appoint deacons. So, there you have the three-legged bar stool and our effort to honor God in 
following his instructions and his wisdom in going about this process. I hope this helps inform you and helps you feel comfortable with what we're about. As you think about this and all this tedium of instruction, think about the value and the importance the Lord has placed on his church. And it's an important institution that says you need to be a part of it if you're not. So if you're not a part of the Lord's church yet, if you're not saved yet, we want to give you the opportunity to do that, partake of that blessing of salvation. If we can assist you in that, or if you're a Christian and you need the church's prayers, we'd like to help you in that way. If we can help you in either way, please come have a seat on the front while we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.